You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada a Catholic voice wherever you are. I thought today I would uh, share with you a reflection that Bishop Sheen gave in the 1950s entitled The 30th Parallel. And here he'll talk about uh, a very distinct line uh, in the world and uh, talk about uh, riches and poverty. Uh, But very interesting, uh, this topic of the 30th Parallel. But I won't give away all of the conversation. I'll let Bishop Sheen enlighten us. And uh, during the second half of our broadcast, we will uh, enjoy a retreat uh, talk that he gave entitled Restoring the Vineyard. And it came from a priestly retreat a number of years ago. Uh, So lots to share today. Uh, So I'd ask you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Before we started this show, we had a discussion as to whether or not I should wear these robes which a bishop wears when he lectures. And it was decided that we should. And it revived in my mind something that happened years ago in Cleveland. I went there to give a lecture, and I arrived at the Hotel Cleveland just a short time before the lecture. And I had nothing to eat. I was a bit hungry, and I asked the four members of the committee if they would go down to the dining room with me while I ordered a glass of milk and some graham crackers. Well, the waitress came someone in the early 30s, and she took the orders of the men who were with me, and then she looked at me, and I was dressed this way, and she said, well, Cock Robin, what will you have? (laughs) My angel is with me, and he will clean the blackboard and be seen in non-living color. Before the show went on, we were listening to a radio show, and he said, you know, if the top ten records sound like that, what must the bottom ten sound like? 
Are you confused about what this 30th parallel might mean? Well, I will give you a hint in a true story. A nun came into one of the large department stores of New York and bumped into a floor walker whom she knew very well, and the floor walker said, Sister, I haven't seen you in about three or four years. No, I've been sick. You've gotten thin. Yes, she said, very thin. In fact, she said, this ring which I got when I took my final vow became too large and I had to have it shortened. When I took my vows, I had written on the inside of the ring, O Lord, may I always be thine. Now it reads, O Lord, may I always be thin. <laughs> well, it has something to do with that. Something. It's about the world, primarily. That's one of the reasons why we have the map here. And we have been used to thinking all of our studies, most of the lectures we've heard, even poetry, has been about the division of the East and the West. That was the way the world was divided culturally. And this was the East in here, Europe, Uh, the West, I mean. Why did I say East? This is the West here. Called the Christian West sometimes. And then later on, with discoveries, we became part of it. And this was the East here. And we used to think that all of the light and the culture was in the Western world. In the darkness and paganism and so forth, was in the East. Now, it is true that there's a world of difference between the people of the East and the West. Remember how Kipling put it? East is East and West is West, and ne'er the twain shall meet. First of all, the people of the West. We generally think with our heads. And the people of the East rather think with their hearts, or rather with the totality of their being. Did you know, for example, that wrestlers in Japan, before they would start a wrestling match, they used to stare at the other person, at the other wrestler, in order to absorb his whole personality. In fact, they stared so much that they had to make a law that you could stare only for 20 minutes. But the idea was that one had to take in the whole person. So that uh, we were considered the rational beings and we developed science. We will not have time to explain that. But it is interesting, isn't it, that our Western world alone developed technology? partly due to the long training of the mind by Christianity and the long discipline of the mind, too, which is introduced. Practically no technology at all in the Eastern world. The Western world is masculine. It works with nature. 
in the world is feminine. It's concerned more with persons and feelings and emotions. Now, that is the old cultural division of the world. Now I want to indicate to you that there is a new division of the world. And it is not cultural, it is principally economic. This could be a circular map. If you put your finger here on the 30th parallel, you might circle the whole globe like this. Now the 30th parallel, we would raise somewhat above China. And this would be the new division of the world, not the north and the south. We will not call it that. There's another base. Practically, all of the prosperity, the wealth, the technology, the science, the education is above the 30th parallel and most of the poverty and the need and the hunger and starvation is below the 30th parallel. This, I believe, is the new division of the world. And that is why we call it the 30th parallel. Now, just to give you some examples of the difference between those of us who love, live above and those who live below. First of all, we're going to go here to the United States because this is the subject of considerable contrast. Last year, the per capita, per capita, that is to say, per man, woman, and child, the per capita expenditure in the United States for alcohol and cigarettes was $136 per man, woman, and child. This is $36 more than two-thirds of the world earns. In other words, it's $36 less than our expenditure for cigarettes and alcohol alone. If we made a comparison of the raw material that is used by the United States and the rest of the world, we would find out that the United States has used 40% more of all of the natural resources of the world since the 2,000 years, has used more of that than all the rest of the world has ever used. It has helped, of course, produce our, our tremendous economy. But the inequalities continue. 
In this part of the world here, there are about 10 million lepers. We don't have any, practically none, in the United States. If the poor below the 30th parallel could make a profession, travel over the earth, and if they were able to walk on water as well as land, and they started here and followed one after the other and walked all around the earth if this were a circular globe, how many times would they circle the earth? 25 times. Give you another figure. You want a good job, my angel does. <laughs> we in the United States are 6% of the population of the earth. And we control 46% of the world's wealth. Of the world's wealth. Suppose then we divided $100 among the people of the United States and the rest of the world without working it out exactly each person in the United States would get about $7.50. And the 54% that is left would get about 50 cents each. That's the distribution of the Earth's wealth at the present time. We throw enough food into the garbage pails of the United States each week to feed all China for three days. Now, is it any wonder that there is a disorder in the world? Well, you see, all of these people here in Africa and Asia have always been poor. Granted, they've always been poor, but there's a difference. Now they know they're poor. And they were not conscious of it before. And they know they're poor simply in contrast to us, where practically the status symbol of a teenager in the United States is to own an automobile. Can this, continue, this condition continue? We just simply cannot be an island of prosperity in a great sea of need. What's to be done? Well, one suggestion is I think we'll have to develop the spirit of poverty. The spirit of poverty. Not impoverishing ourselves. But the spirit of poverty means to have a sympathy. 
to those that are poor. Leave the sharing, leaving, as the Jews used to put it, leaving some olives on the tree, some grapes on the vine, and some sheaves in the field for the fatherless and the orphans and the poor. There are many in the Western world who take the vow of poverty. That vow of poverty today has practically little or no meaning. Of course, it does not mean destitution. But there are many who individually take the vow of poverty who live in a kind of corporate wealth. And there are at least 200 million people here who would take the vow of poverty tomorrow if they could live as well, eat as well, sleep as well, be clothed as well as those who take the vow of poverty. Now I bring that up only because there is a change that is setting in. Wonderful change. I go very often to a Trappist monastery. And I was at one not very long ago giving a retreat. Imagine me giving a retreat to Trappist. I told, I told them it was very much like a, a chicken and a pig that were one way a day walking along a road. And uh, they saw a billboard. And on the billboard was a big picture of a plate of ham and eggs. And the chicken said to the pig, he said, isn't it wonderful how happy we make the American people? <laughs> and the pig says to the chicken, it's all right for you. You only make a contribution, but I make a total commitment. <laughs> and... So I bring it up simply because there are many who are making a total commitment. For example, these Trappists, no newspaper, no radio, no television, never any meat, never any fish, really only one, what we would call a meal a day, and that's vegetables. And now in ten distinct monasteries, they are moving out individuals to become hermits. Isn't that interesting? That our prosperous, affluent United States should be so conscious of the fact that we have to revive poverty in some way, that these men are beginning, beginning to give an example of it. This is a hope for the world. One day I was going into my office and a priest met me. He said, do you remember me? And I said, yes, you were in the seminary with me. He had on a dirty old overcoat and a thermos bottle in one pocket and a sandwich in the other. And he came up to my office and he gave me a paper bag and in it was $17,000. He said, I want you to give this to the poor of the world. And I said, where did you get this? He said, this. 
represents all of the gifts that I have received in over 40 years of the priesthood. And he said, I'm giving everything. I said, what hotel are you staying at? He says, I don't stay in a hotel. I'm sleeping in the Grand Central Station. That's how I save money. I said, is that your dinner in your pocket? He said, yes, that's the dinner in my pocket. And he would not come to my house to dinner. He said, see the way I'm dressed? I couldn't. So, there is beginning to be in this country an understanding of sharing and the deep sense of poverty, the spirit of poverty. And youth are beginning to share it too. If I had time, I read over this morning a number of letters that came from young people, teenagers too, that I was going to read you, but though this program may seem like two hours and a half, but actually it's only a half-hour program, so I don't have time to read them to you. But they too are filled with this sense. And this is good for our nation. And along with this spirit of poverty, I believe also that we will develop what we might call vulnerability. Vulnerability means that, well, when we see somebody who's wounded, we share his wounds. And when we become conscious that, that here are the people in Asia and other parts of the world, and the slums down in, in Latin America, that these people, for example, get a bowl of rice every two days and two inches of fish every other day, and they call that feasting. We call it fasting. And so, as sympathy and the vulnerability to their needs. I was once in, uh, in the bushes of Africa, and there was a leper woman who came to communion. Her, leg, her arms were off at her elbows, and her legs were off at her knees. And I said to her, uh, where did you come from? She said, the bush. How far away? About four miles. I said, how did you come? He said, I crawled on my elbows and on my knees. And I said, well, now, do not come tomorrow. I will get a bicycle and I'll bring you communion. The next morning, she was there. I said, I thought I told you not to come. Oh, she said, Father, I didn't want to be a trouble to you. It was her type of vulnerability. So in our affluence in this country, believe me, to save the world, we have to develop a, a deeper sense of sharing and not to shrink from the wounds of others, as I did as I did. I'm almost ashamed to tell it to you. I was visiting a leper colony in Baluba, Africa. And I brought with me 500 small silver crucifixes, about an inch and a half high. 
one for each leper. First one who came to see me had his, uh, his arm off at the elbow, his left arm. And he held up the stump and he had a rosary around it. And he held out his right hand. It was the most fetid, foul, noisy, massive corruption that I ever saw in my life. I held the crucifix above it for a second, and then I dropped it. I dropped it. It was immediately swallowed up in that volcano of leprosy. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there were 501 lepers in that camp. And I was the worst of all. For here I had taken this symbol of God's love for man. This divine vulnerability, as it were. And I refused to make myself a brother and a sharer of this man's disease. I put myself something between him and me. I refused to share. And I shrank from him. He was practiced certainly a thousand times cleaner on the inside than I was on the outside. Or rather, he was cleaner on the outside than I on the inside. And then, I thought of the terrible thing that I had done. And I reached my fingers into his hand and dug out the cross. And then I pressed hand to hand the crucifix between the two and did that for the other 500 lepers. That's what I mean by vulnerability. Being uneasy until the poor are helped. Not sleeping well until in some way they are aided. As the poet Auden put it, Hunger knows no peace. Either we love one another or we perish. And as a Polish poet put it, My name is Million. Million. For I hunger and I thirst for the millions of poor in the world. will return in a moment. If you have a subject you would like me to write about, either send me your angel or, or write. Thank you. Bye now, and God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos 
and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, if I were a sculptor, I would invite you into my studio to give this telecast. If I were a gardener, I would invite you among the flowers. But I am a priest. So I invite you to this chapel where I have spent so many hours and years of my life to talk to you about the priesthood. I can never remember a moment in my life when I did not want to be a priest. I remember when I was a boy, my father used to send Asheen kids out to one of his farms to help the tenant farmer with spring plowing. And I can remember looking down at those young rows of corn as I was plowing them and saying prayers that one day I might be a priest. But though I always wanted to be a priest, I was also sure that I was not worthy. And it was that that troubled me. My parents never mentioned it to me until I went away to the seminary. And they said, we always knew you had a vocation, but we did not want to influence you. Just be sure you're a good one. But others seemed to know. I can remember when I was a, a boy, maybe maybe eight years old, I was say, serving a bishop at the cathedral one morning, and I brought the wine and water cruets to the altar. And I dropped a cruet on the marble floor. Now let me tell you that there is no atomic explosion that equals an extent of decibels the noise of a wine cruet dropping on a marble floor in the presence of a bishop in the cathedral. I was frightened to death. After mass, the bishop called me over. He said, young man, where are you going to school when you get big? Well, to me, high school was big. 
And I said to Spalding Institute, which was named after him. He said, I said, when you got big. And I said, I do not know your excellency. Did you ever hear of Louvain? No. Did your mother? I shall ask her. Well, you go home and tell your mother that I said that when you got big, that someday you were going to Louvain, the greatest university in the world, and one day you'll be like me. I never understood that as being a bishop. I only understood it as being a priest. So others thought it. But now let me tell you, since I have lived the priesthood for many years, much more than is given to most priests, let me tell you some of the trials and some of the joys. One of the trials is celibacy. After all, it is not difficult, it is difficult to take a vow to the good Lord and promise never to be married. Now, why does the Lord, why was he a celibate? And why does he ask us? Well, he asks in order that we might be able to make a totally committed love without division and without compromise, just to be totally his. After all, there have been men in the world who took the vow of celibacy. Gandhi did. Gandhi took it for the sake of the untouchables of India. Hammershold, the famous Secretary General of the United Nations, took the vow of celibacy in order to bring peace to the world. Now, if men can take the vow of celibacy for the sake of untouchables and for the sake of the peace of the world, why should not the Lord ask that we take it for him just to be totally dedicated to his work? Hammershaw wrote a poem about it. Later on, he said, The road, you shall follow it. The fun, you shall forget it. The cup, you shall drink it. The truth, you shall be told it. The pain, you shall endure it. And the end, you shall suffer it. Now, celibacy seems hard to those outside, but really, I tell you when it gets hard. It gets hard when we fall out of love. It gets hard for a husband to be monogamous when he falls out of love for his wife. And just as soon as we fall out of love with the good Lord, it gets to be very hard. We cannot live without love. And if we're in love with him, oh, he provides the means. We have all the joys of another kind of love, that love that leaves all other love of pain. The unpossessed that makes possession vain. That's the first trial. 
The other, obedience. We hardly ever hear that word anymore. Obedience. Now, obedience means pledging our will to the church and to its representative authorities. That is not so easy. In fact, it can be very difficult. And the reason for obedience is that all through the scriptures and through the divine mysteries, someone is being sent. The Father sent the Son. So our blessed Lord came to this earth and it was written of him in the head of the book, I will do thy will. The Son said he would send the Spirit. And the Father, Son, and Spirit sent the Apostles. And the Apostles have kept sending since. So when we are sent on a certain mission, we are obeying the divine tradition and the divine order. It's particularly hard today because our world is full of the imperial self. How often you've heard, for example, I gotta be me. I gotta do my thing. All the unhappy souls in the world, the psychotics and the neurotics are those who have to do their thing. So that when there's obedience, we do not want to do my thing. I want to do his thing. I want to do the Lord's thing. Well, that's not easy. Well, I remember when I was in college, I took an examination for a scholarship. And the scholarship entitled me to three years of postgraduate education in a great university. And I won it. I was thrilled. I went to see our professor of philosophy, who was my spiritual director in college. And I told him I won the scholarship. And he was out on a tennis court. I have great reverence for people who play tennis. And he put his hands on my shoulder and he said, Do you believe in God? I said, You know I do. He said, I mean practically, concretely. I said, I hope so. He said, where's the scholarship? I said, here in my pocket. He said, tear it up. And I said, why tear it up? He said, you know you have a vocation. The Lord wants you to be a priest. Do not delay his call. Go. Well, I said, Father Bergen, let me get my PhD first. Then I will go on for the priesthood. He said, no. Follow your calling. Well, I said, what shall I do with this? He said, tear it up. I tore it up. Now, he said, you will get a far better university education 
after you were ordained than before. And it happened that way. After I was ordained, I had five years of graduate work. Five. Three in Europe. Then the question of obedience came up. Here I was being prepared as a teacher. And when I came back to the diocese, the bishop sent me to a very poor parish where the streets were unpaved and many of the people did not speak English. And immediately a protest began on the part of the newspapers and the faithful saying, why does the bishop waste money educating a priest and then send him to be just like every other priest? Well, I went to my parents and I said, now take part in this, no part in this conversation. I said, this is the will of the Lord. He has called me to follow the word of the bishop and I shall do it. So I was perfectly satisfied. I confess to you. I felt, well, this is the rest of my life. I shall forget my books. I shall give myself wholly to parochial work. So I worked there for about a year and one day the bishop called me up. And he said, I promised you to the university about two years ago. I said, why didn't you let me go when I came home from Europe? Well, he said, I just wanted to find out whether or not you would obey. Now be a good boy, run along. And I've been running along ever since. I wouldn't be giving this telecast if I had not obeyed. But it's hard, but it's the will of God. Now, the superior doesn't always have to be right. Remember that. He can be wrong. He can be misdirected. But we can be right in following him as expressing the will of God. Believe me, when we seek our own will, we're not always happy anyway. I remember one time in my life, for two years, though I was director of the Society for the Propagation of the Faith, I was not received in audience by the Holy Father, Pius XII. Nor were any other directors of the world who were associated with me from all other countries. For two years, he would not see us. Well, that was because he had some information. And he was acting upon it as he saw it. The third year, he called me in. He said, I have been deceived. But you have obeyed. And you will have a high place in heaven for it. Well, such is our second trial. There are others, but we do not have time. Now some of the joys. One of the first joys is being an ambassador of Christ. Very few of us ever realize tremendous responsibilities of that. But just as an angel said to Mary, 
Will you give God a human nature? So, in the life of every priest, maybe he can remember the moment. Maybe it was over a long period of time. But the angel of vocation came to us and said, Will you give God your human nature? As Mary gave him a human nature, through which he taught and governed and sanctified, would you give Christ your human nature? Through which he will teach and govern and sanctify? And when we were ordained, that was our commitment. We became the instruments of Christ. As the Vatican Council put it, the priest is the living instrument of Christ. The living instrument. Like a pencil is the instrument of my hand. And the effectiveness of the pencil depends upon how much it is responsive to my hand, to my will. If, for example, I want to write the word God, the pencil will write the word God. Suppose the pencil had a will of its own. And when I wanted to write the word God, the pencil wrote the word dog. I couldn't do anything with it. So our effectiveness depends entirely upon how close we are to him. Now, this is a great joy, but it's, it's a tremendous responsibility, too. But the more we're in love with him, the more we are submissive to his will and are supple. And say to him, all right, do with me as you please. And he can use us. When we preach, when we administer sacraments, when we care for the missions, all of the power depends upon our union with him. And that is our first great joy. Now a second joy, which follows from that, is the Holy Eucharist. We can offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Yes, Scripture said, Christ having died once will never die again. How then do we say that Christ dies again in the Mass? He cannot die again in that human nature he took from Mary. That is glorified at the right hand of the Father. But he's saying to us, give me your human nature. Not only to us priests, he's saying it to the faithful. Give me yours. I will continue my death in you. great power, therefore, is to go to Calvary, and we, we take the crucifix, as it were, out of the rock of Calvary, and we lift it up. It's in space, it's in time in Calvary, but when we offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass, Hong Kong, Laos, New York, Paris, 
planting a cross once again so everyone can come within its shade and shadow. And then we become conscious of the fact that we're not just priests. A priest is one who offers. All of the pagan priests and the Jewish priests offered something separate, distinct from themselves. We do not. We're to offer ourselves. See, our Lord offered himself. So we are not just priests. There's a hyphen after priest. We're victims. And the secondary meaning of the words of consecration is the secondary meaning. Primary meaning, this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ, obviously. But the secondary meaning, we are saying, this is my body. This is my blood. Use it as you will. We are therefore to be prepared for any kind of trial, conflict, sickness, misunderstanding, false brethren, anything and everything as a prolongation of the cross. Knowing very well that it is through the cross that we come to the glory of the resurrection. And then in addition to the mass, we have the blessed sacrament, the presence of Christ. In the Jewish law, for example, they had the bread of presence, 12 loaves on the altar representing the 12 tribes. We believe that Christ is present here in the tabernacle. Not present as he was physically on earth, but the extension of his glorified life in heaven. And you would be surprised and it would edify you to know the number of priests that there are in this country and in the world who every single day of their priestly lives spend one continuous hour in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. They have heard that plea of our Lord in the garden can you not watch one hour with me? Finally, vocations. Vocations, missions, love of the poor. Because we have the vow of celibacy, that does not mean that we are not to have children. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I think that when we go before the judgment seat of the good Lord, he's going to say, where are your children? What vocations have you had? How many young men can you say you have inspired and aided to prepare them for the priesthood? I can remember once being at the dinner at, at, dinner at the... Uh, Satter Hotel in Boston. And the boy came in with a shoeshine box. And a D shirt. Not a T shirt. D. Dirty. He had the box over his shoulder and he got hold of a great purple curtain that was at the entrance of the dining room. And he started swinging on it. Well, you can imagine when the head waiter of the Statter saw it. He screamed. Chased him out of the hotel. I went out after him. I said, where do you go to school? He said, 
I don't know, public school 26 or whatever it was. What is your name? He told me. And I said, you have a Catholic name. Why don't you go to a Catholic school? He said, I got kicked out. I said, I'll get you back. You can't get me back. Nobody can get me back. He said, why not? Well, that's what the priest told me, and that's what the sister superior told me. I said, let's see. So I went to the school, and I said to the pastor and the sister superior, I know of three boys that were thrown out of school, one because he drew pictures during geography class, another because he had dirty books under the mattress, revolutionary books, and the third because he was always fighting. I'm sure that if the religious teachers, and they were religious teachers, had those, those boys back, it would have turned out differently. You know who they were? Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini. I said, take this boy back. Someday, he may be a joy to you. Lo and behold, that's what happened. Today, he's a missionary among the Eskimos. Not only fostering vocations with converts, bringing souls to our Lord. St. James tells us that if we save a soul, we save our own. So it's an easy way to get into the kingdom of heaven. And then the love of the missions. A sharing in the sin and the suffering of the world. Not just as humanists, but rather seeing all of the poor and the needy of the world as the extension of the body of Christ in the Eucharist. And that's why we have to love them. And this is our joy. And it's a greater inspiration for charity than could possibly exist in any other way. Now my time is about up. Sorry I do not have time to tell you about other joys. But let me tell you about the inside. Because we're celibates, we have to have the feminine. And we have the feminine. Our blessed Lord was the only one who ever made his mother. And he kept very close to her. In fact, so very close. And she was with him as a refugee and at the foot of the cross. And when she held him in her arms, when he was taken down from the cross, she could say, as we priests could never say, the words of consecration, this is my body, this is my blood. Nobody in all the world gave him body and blood but her. And on the cross, he gave his mother to us. And that is our great feminine love. We depend on her. And someday, when we go to heaven, I think the good Lord is going to say to us priests who had that love, I have heard my mother speak of you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, 
Hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I hope you enjoyed his talk on the priesthood, and uh, we are blessed to have him share his priestly ministry with us, uh, sharing the faith and uh, bringing us closer to our Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ. I want to thank my good friend Anthony from a website entitled FultonSheen.com, and uh, there is a digital library that is second to none, uh, well over 300 recordings, and uh, for $27 you could purchase your own digital library and have it uh, for your computer, for your uh, cell phone, uh, any of your devices. Uh, it is great to take Bishop Sheen with you wherever you go. So again, FultonSheen.com to purchase your own Fulton Sheen Library. And of course, he has been sharing these great recordings with us here at Radio Maria Canada. And uh, God love you, Anthony, and FultonSheen.com for your help in uh, bringing souls to Christ. And so everyone, until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.